Please turn with me to your study outlines. And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends at First Baptist Church at Arco, Idaho, and also Purpose Church, Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word. We've been doing a series on the seven churches of Revelation, in cha Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And today we come to Philadelphia, the church that was obedient but weak. Now before we dig into our study, I want us to step back and look at the forest and then we're going to look at the trees, seven individual trees, the seven churches of Revelation. We're studying one tree at a time. But let's kind of step back and look not just at the grove of trees, uh, the seven trees that we call the seven churches of Revelation. Let's take another step back and look at the whole book of Revelation. There are four approaches that Bible scholars take to the book of Revelation. Some take the futurist approach, where that means that most of what you find in the book of Revelation is going to happen in the future, or if, if Christ is about to come back now, it's happening right now. So it, it happens in the few years right before Jesus returns. The other view, the preterist view, uh, says that almost all the book of Revelation is about what happened around 90 A.D., in the first century of Christ's followers. And it's all about that, primarily about that. The idealist view is the idea that it's all symbolic and that it equally applies to every generation of Christians through the last 2,000 years. That the symbols there of good versus evil, of the expanse of the kingdom of God, of Jesus leading those of us that follow him to hang in there during tough times and to reach the world for Christ, that, that it's all symbolic. And so we can apply it equally through all generations of Christians. And then the historist position says that the seven churches of Revelation represent seven different periods of church history from the beginning of Christianity in 30 A.D. right up to the present. Now, maybe it's just because I have trouble making decisions, but I'm telling you, I like all of them. And as I've studied them all, they all make great sense. And I really believe that the Bible is a supernatural book that can be all four of those approaches at the same time. And I even have precedent for it in the way we interpret Old Testament prophecy. We say that Old Testament prophecy is like a mountain range. And so if you're looking at a mountain range, there's the range that's close, there's some that are in between, and then there's some that are far away. And so when you have the prophecies from 7, um, 800, 700, 600, 500 B.C., uh, prophecies by people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they will often have multiple fulfillments in their prophecy. And so they'll prophesy, uh, fulfill prophecy of Scripture. I'm telling you, that alone would make you believe that this is God's Word. It's just crazy. The thousands of prophecies, so specific, and given hundreds, thousands of years before, when nobody could know who was going to be the players at that time in history. It's just crazy. And so they'll make a prophecy, for example, that some nation is going to conquer another nation 70 years in the future. And it'll not make sense at the time. It'll be like me making a prophecy that 70 years from today, Cuba is going to invade the United States and conquer the United States. You say, Glenn, you're crazy. Cuba is a smaller country. It doesn't have a powerful army. How is it going to defeat the United States? And, and then it happens. You know, like Babylon was nothing when the prophet said they're going to come and conquer the Assyrians. And yet, sure enough, they did it. So anyway, I don't want to get off on a tangent. I will go there all day. I, it's one of my favorite subjects. So there's immediate fulfillment. 
Then there's medium fulfillment. Uh, the prophecy will also have fulfillment at the first coming of Christ. And then there's long-term fulfillment at the second coming of Christ. And so one prophecy can have three different fulfillments. And I believe it's the same kind of way. I believe the book of Revelation talks about the future. And right before Christ comes back, I think that it applies to what was going on in the church in 90 AD. I think it applies to Christians equally all through history. I think it also is just amazing. I mean, when you compare the seven churches of Revelation to the seven periods of church history, it's crazy how they line up. I mean, it'll, it'll send chills down your spine. And so number one was the age of Ephesus, which is the apostolic age, the beginning of the church. Number two is the age of Smyrna, the persecution of the church through A.D. 313 when the Roman Emperor Constantine made Christianity legal. Now I tell you, that was not a favor. We were way more powerful and attractional when we were illegal. I mean, when, as soon as we became legal, we began to compromise. But we were illegal until this point, and that leads to number three. The age of Pergamum is the compromised church lasting until 500 A.D. when we began to make compromises because we began to fit in because, after all, we were now not illegal and persecuted. We were legal. We were legit. Number four is the age of Thyatira, which is the Middle Ages, what we call the Dark Ages, up until the Protestant Reformation, up until the Reformation. Uh, number five is the age of Sardis, which is the age of the Reformation. Number six we're going to look at today is the age of Philadelphia, is the age of evangelism. Now Christianity, followers of Christ, have always been the most explosive, widespread, largest, fastest growing movement in all of human history by far. But it really accelerated from 1500 A.D. until the present. Just crazy. Just in every nook and cranny of the world, all around the world, in every, in every place. And we are currently continuing, I believe, in that age, somewhere between number six and number seven, the age of Laodicea, is the churches that drift from the truth before the return of Christ. Okay, that's kind of looking at the forest. Now let's dig into the trees. And now we're not only going to look at the tree of, of the church uh, of Philadelphia, we're just going to look at a couple of branches of the tree. Because I'm going to spend almost our entire time, if not our entire time, on just two verses. Revelation 3, verse 7 and verse 8. There is just so much there that we're going to spend almost our entire time just on those two verses. Let's kick in. Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Talking about Jesus uh, from a prophecy, Isaiah 22, which says that Jesus will be in the line of King David, in the lineage of David from 1000 BC, King David in Israel. Uh, he will hold the keys uh, to the kingdom of David. That's what the prophecy says back in Isaiah. Jesus is holy. Jesus is true. So there's Jesus standing there, holy, true, holding the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Oh my goodness, are we going to have fun today. That is awesome. There he stands in all his glory, holy, true, holding the keys. And what he shuts down, stays shut down. And what he opens up, uh, stays open. Now before we get too excited, let's back up and look at the historical background for the city of Philadelphia. It was started around 189 B.C. by the king of Pergamum. We studied Pergamum three Sundays ago. And he was a king named Eumenes II. And he started this city, and he called it Philadelphus, which in the Greek means brother-lover. 
And he did it because of his love for his brother. He loved his brother so much that he names the city Brother Lover. And so the modern city of Philadelphia in, in Pennsylvania today in the United States is called the city of brotherly love because its name means Brother Lover because of his love for his brother. Now, the city was a mission city intended by the Roman emperor and the Roman Empire to spread Greek culture and language to the east. And so putting up our map that we've looked at so many weeks, you'll see that Philadelphia is right here, and its mission, it was right in a strategic trade route area, where its mission was to reach this part of the world with Greek language and with Greek culture. But Jesus is going to hijack it for the purpose of spreading the Christian faith. And that's what Jesus does. He hijacks things and uses them for his own purpose. How many of you got hijacked by Jesus? Okay, you were going in this way, you were living for one thing, and then you got hijacked by Jesus, and he, and he took you in, in a totally different direction. That's what he's going to do for the city of, of Philadelphia. That's what he did for Paul. Paul is, is on the way to Damascus, and he's got a mission in life, which is to eliminate all Christians in the world. And he meets Jesus, and Jesus hijacked his life, and he became one of the greatest spreaders of the Christian faith in, in all of human history. So Jesus is all about hijacking lives and given you a new purpose. Um, there are so many examples through history. We could spend all day doing this. Let me just give you a couple of my favorite ones. I love this one about Transworld Radio in Monte Carlo, Monaco. This elaborate radio system was built by Adolf Hitler to spread Nazi propaganda. Uh, he was defeated and the war ended before he ever got to use it. And so a Christian organization called Transworld Radio bought these radio wires, this array of radio wires there in Monaco, and Monte Carlo, and now the thing that Hitler intended for Nazi propaganda is now spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ across Europe, across the Middle East, and across Northern Africa, because that's what Jesus does. Let me give you a, an older example. Voltaire was the most prominent atheist of the 1700s, and he sat in a study one day in Paris and he wrote a prediction that within 40 years of his death, all traces of Christianity would be eliminated in the world. So after he died, the building he, he, he had been in for his study uh, was sold to Christians who set up a printing press in his former office, in his former study, where they churned out Bibles that they sent all across Europe. And so in the very place where he had written this prediction that all traces of Christianity would be gone within 40 years of his death, they're pumping out Bibles and sending them all around the world. Now, there are cool parallels between the Church of Southern California, our church, and the church at Philadelphia. I think you'll pick up on some of them. They were known for their earthquakes. Philadelphia, and it was way worse than for us. They, they had earthquakes all the time. In A.D. 17... An earthquake that destroyed Sardis. Remember last Sunday we talked about how Sardis was destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD. And it destroyed 10 other cities. Also destroyed Philadelphia. And so people were so afraid of the earthquakes that they preferred to live in the rural area surrounding the city. They didn't want to see in the city next to these kind of structures when the earthquake hit. Instead, uh, they do not look retrofitted earthquake-wise from as far as I can concern. doesn't look like great uh, earthquake retrofitting there. And so they preferred to live in the rural areas surrounding the city. 
this kept the population of the city very small. And even the people that lived in the city, if there was the slightest earthquake tremor, they'd all run to the countryside and to the rural as well. And so it's hard to build a, a businesses and, and a city life and a culture when you've got that kind of uncertainty. Here's another thing I think is interesting. They really prospered from 100 A.D. to 160 A.D. for 60 years under the ministry of a prophetess, a female preacher by the name of Amia, A-M-M-I-A. And she was kind of the Pastor Lisa of the church at Philadelphia. And she was seen as being on par with the four daughters of Philip that were prophetesses that, that preached, that you read about in Acts 21, and the prophet Agabus, who was also a prophet, a preacher that was talked about in Acts chapter 21. There are five prophets talked about, four of them are women, one of them is a man. And so this Amia was seen as on par with them, and the church just thrived under her preaching and under her this prophetess uh, for those 60 years. Now, here's the thing the church was most known for. The church at Philadelphia was known for their perseverance. They were known for how tough they were. How, they, were they were known for their perseverance. Even secular historians have huge admiration for, for their perseverance. Uh, Angela Duckworth is just an absolutely brilliant, brilliant, brilliant um, uh, psychologist, academician, and she did this big research study of the graduates of the West Point Military Academy. Uh, West Point uh, probably has, along with the Air Force Academy and the Naval Academy, I don't want to offend any branches of the military here. Um, I don't know if Juan Amaral, he usually sits right here on the front at 945, and he's a graduate of the Air Force Academy. I don't want to offend anybody, but one of the most stringent entrance examinations and, and analysis of students of any institution in the world because if the United States military is going to invest that much money into somebody, they don't want them to quit halfway through. And so they spend all kinds of effort to figure out what are the character traits that's going to make somebody not just start at the military academy. Men and women, many of them start, but not everybody finishes. And so they try to figure that out. So she did this analysis of thousands of West Point graduates. And she found that the one key to whether they made it through to the end or not was this thing she refers to as grit, G-R-I-T. And she wrote a book by that name called Grit. And she defined grit as the passion and perseverance to fulfill long-term goals. The passion and perseverance to fulfill long-term goals. And the Church of Philadelphia had grit. And I like to think that after 148 years, one of the character traits of, of Purpose Church is, is that we have, we have grit. We, if you're visiting with us today, we may not be the flashiest church around or the coolest church around, but we are a church with what I like to call marathon or DNA. We, we've got that perseverance. We've got that grit. Um, we, we like to be stars rather than shooting stars. You know, if you have a shooting star, shooting star goes across the sky and everybody's like, wow, look at that. We don't want to be a shooting star, do we? We want to be a star that just burns in, in the sky for generations until Jesus comes back. Anybody want to say amen to that? And so we're not, a, we're not a shooting star kind of church. We are a star star kind of church, all right, because we are characterized 
uh, by grit and by perseverance. And that's what the church at Philadelphia was known for. Almost all the nation of Turkey was conquered by the Muslim armies that came across in the centuries around 1000 A.D., but Philadelphia was the last holdout against those armies until 1392. And you can even make a case that they have thrived. Uh, the, the followers of Christ in that city have, have hung in there even through the 20th century. Even I saw one case made that they're, they're the ones that are still there today because they had, they had grit. Like I said, even secular historians have this huge admiration for them because of, of their perseverance. So when Jesus says, back to verse 8, when Jesus says, see, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. He's talking about heaven. He's the one that by his death on the cross, he got the keys, died on the cross, rose from the dead, grabbed the keys. He's got the keys to heaven. But also, it means ministry opportunities. Not just heaven, but he's placed before us an open door to ministry opportunities that, that, no, one, that no one can shut. Okay. And, and, and so uh, we see that God works through open and shut doors. How many of you have found that true in your life? He works through shut doors every bit as much as he opens through open doors. Could I just say a word to younger adults here? I, I know it's so discouraging when you're young and you get a door shut in your face and, and some door closes on you. And I just want to encourage you that as you get older and you're going to look back on your life, you are going to thank God for some of the shut doors in your life. Okay? How, how many of you are glad that God shut the door on who you thought you were going to marry in, in high school? Okay, how many of you are like that? Like Garth Brooks' song, Praise God for Unanswered Prayers. You know, thank God. For I mean, how many of you are glad for, those, for some of those? And, and, and not, not everybody. There are some great high school romances here. and Praise God for that. But, but for some of us, that would not have been as pleasant as, as it has worked out for you. And so he works through shut doors. Let me just encourage you. If you're a young adult, don't be discouraged by a shut door. Every one of my kids, uh, my older four, they, they ended up in the right school, but it was their second choice school. None of my kids got into their, their first choice of, of, of school. Uh, God closed that door, and yet he, the one he opened was just like perfect uh, for them. God works through open and shut doors. Because of, we've been celebrating a few weeks ago, and I'm so grateful. You guys were such a blessing to our family, our 25th anniversary here at Purpose Church. And so Kimberly and I have been very nostalgic about that. And we've been nostalgic not just for 25 years ago, but for 26 years ago. See, 26 years ago, right about this time, we had been at Homer, in Homer, New York, a little town up near the northern, up near the Canadian border, in a, in a kind of a small town, rural, rural setting. And we had been there for going on 12 years. And our kids were getting to the age where if we were ever going to make a move, we needed to do that now rather than do that like when they were partway through high school or something like that. And so, or partway through junior high or whatever. And so we thought, you know what, if we're going to do anything different, now's the time. We were totally happy where we were. We loved every moment that we were in Homer, New York. Just loved it. We had so much fun. This, in this little town, this rural setting, we had a church of a couple hundred that grew to about a thousand, and it was just crazy. It's just like what God did there, it was just like unprecedented for that rural area for hundreds of square miles, and it was just a crazy thing God was doing, and we were just having so much fun, but we had always felt a call to missions, and so we said, Lord, we're going to give you the year 1992 
to just kind of be open to, if you want to call us to the mission field. And if you don't open any doors, we're just going to put our roots down. We're going to stay here in Homer probably for the rest of our lives because my mentor in ministry, my mentor pastor, he had stayed in one church almost his entire life. And I thought, I'm going to be just like Pastor David Midwood, my mentor, and I'm just going to be in one church for my entire life. That's what I'm going to do. And so we, we checked out a situation where we, we would be in an English-speaking church in Lahore, Pakistan. Uh, we considered uh, teaching in a Bible school in Liberia. We considered being missionaries in Singapore. The one we came the closest to was to pastor an English-speaking church in Moscow in Russia. And, 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 but then at the last moment, or close to the last moment, the, a doctor met with us and said, you know, you shouldn't do that. Our son, John, that we just adopted from an orphanage in, in Cali, Colombia, South America, we just adopted him. And praise God, he's healthy now, and he's a missionary in Peru. But he had some severe health problems when we first adopted him. And so the doctor said, you should not have him under Russian medical care, all right? He needs to be in the United States. He needs to be under American medical care. And so we said, okay, God, closed door, that's fine. We are re-upping in Homer for, for the rest of, for the foreseeable future, if not the rest of our lives. But about 10 days from the end of that deadline, uh, December 31st was kind of the deadline that we put out there. Right around December 20th, Kimberly goes to our church, the sanctuary there in Homer, uh, to spend an entire day just fasting and praying and just saying, God, if you want something different, just let us know. We're happy where we are, but just let us know. And that day, a letter arrived from Pomona, California. And, uh, and, and you know, I've told you this before. It's just so funny. It's kind of how naive we are or narcissistic or arrogant or stupid. You pick the one that you want to use. But I thought I was the only one that had gotten this letter asking about being a pastor here. Come to find out, it was a mass mailing. It, it had gone... <laughs> It gone to like one or two hundred other pastors. And uh, I mean, I'm so dumb that when Ed McMahon says you've won the sweepstakes, I'm like, wow, I can't believe it. I won the thing. And, and, and so, you know, but for us, it was as if it was the only one. It was just like a light uh, from heaven. And so God works through all kinds of shut doors and he works through open doors. And, and just remember, he says, see, I've placed before you an open door. And if it's, if it's meant to be, no one can shut it. Now, like I said, it's the door to heaven or it's the door to ministry. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, again, he's talking about the door to heaven. But I believe he's also talking about a door to ministry. And doors are scary to walk through. Do doors are hard to walk through. Do doors are scary. Our St. Bernard, Millie, she's 130 pounds. She's a big old dog. She hates walking through doors. I don't know what it is. I'm going to have to take her to a dog psychologist to figure it out. She does not like walking through doors. And so if I, have to, if I want her to go outside, I have to open the door wide. There can't be any obstacles there. I have to stand to the side and beg her to walk through the open door. Only way she's going to do it. And uh, humans don't like going through open doors. They can be scary for us as well. How many of you have ever walked to get something from one room to another, and when you got to that new room, forgot what you were there for? Anybody have that happen? Okay, aren't you glad you came to church today just for that? That's why you came. I want you to know, you are not losing your marbles, all right? You, you are not. There's a scientific reason 
for that. Okay? There's a scientific reason for that. Um, that. That they say, psychologists say that a, an open door is like a psychological line of demarcation. And when you walk through it, you psychologically leave behind the room you're in as you enter into the new room. And so there's a reason that you walk from one room to the next that you forget ab about what you were there, there for. Uh, and, and doors are scary. And walking through doors are, are, are scary. And they're scary for us as we follow Christ. They're scary for us as a church as well. Back to that map. Remember the missionary city that Philadelphia was? And, and, and they had this mission, this door that was placed before them that Jesus had hijacked for them to share Christ in this area and to influence their world for Christ. Well, what a crazy month we have had, huh? What a crazy year we've had. This summer, I mean, who would have ever thought a year ago, who would have ever thought six months ago that the world's biggest non-denominational, multi-denominational evangelical seminary an institution possibly that has trained the most number of world leaders around the world in Africa, Asia, North America, Europe, Central America, that, that the, the biggest producer of the leadership of the body of Christ around the world would drop themselves across the street from our church. Who would have ever thought such a thing? And you know, there were kind of secret negotiations uh, not secret negotiations, but we just weren't able to go public with it, okay? And Pastor Eric knows about this, and Eric and I were involved in these and, and, uh, and, 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 and talking to them a, a year ago. And I remember a year ago just thinking, remember, Eric, we just said, there's not a chance. There's just no way. There are so many obstacles to this. There is just absolutely no way this thing is going to happen. But you see, we thought that we were in charge of the negotiations. We thought the people at Fuller were in charge of, of, of the conversations. We forgot that the ultimate negotiator was back to verse 8 again, the one who places an open door before you. His name is Jesus, and when he opens a door, no one can shut it. And we thought over the last year, no way, no way. There must have been 20 times. Well, oh, that's it. Done, 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 done. That door shut, that door shut, door shut. But Jesus was holding open the door. And because he was holding open the door, it couldn't be shut. And here we are today with a door of opportunity. Now we can identify with the church at Philadelphia. Because it says, I know that you have little strength. I mean, we're, we're a fairly large church. But considering the opportunity in front of us, we, we do not feel up to the task in our own strength. The Greek word for little here is micro. And so in the Greek, it's micro. And in the English, the word is micro. So there, there you go. <laughs> micro in the Greek, micro. But it's translated here little. All right. So, so micro, the word translated here from the Greek strength is dynamo, from which we get our word dynamite. So you have micro dynamite. <laughs> you have micro power, little strength. Okay. You, you don't have as much going for you as you need. Uh, the city of Philadelphia was a very small city compared to the other of the seven churches of Revelation. By far the smallest. Uh, only 15,000 people. I mean, compare that to Ephesus, which uh, Pastor Eric preached on a few weeks ago. 250,000 people. 250,000. Uh, Philadelphia only had 15,000. So it was not prosperous. Nobody wanted to live there. Nobody wanted to build a business there. 
because of the earthquakes. They were just afraid to be there. So small, it lacked status, and it lacked power. But the church of Philadelphia had two things going for them. They had little strength, but they kept God's word. They were obedient to God's word, and they did not deny his name. And if you're here today, and you feel like you are micro-dunamis, you have little power, little strength, but if you obey his word and don't deny his name, God can use you for eternal consequence. And you may not even see it in this life. It, it may be something you never see till later on. Kimberly and I love a song by Josh Wilson called Dream Small. It's been on the radio. I don't know if you've heard it. Um, instead of dream big, dream small. It's a mama singing songs about the Lord. It's a daddy spending family time that the world said he cannot afford. These simple moments change the world. It's a pastor at a tiny little church, 40 years of loving on the broken and the hurt. These simple moments change the world. Dream small. Don't buy the lie. You've got to do it all. Just let Jesus use you where you are one day at a time. Live well, loving God and others as yourself. Find little ways where only you can help. With his great love, a tiny rock can make a giant fall. Dream small. It's visiting the widow down the street or dancing on a Friday with your friend with special needs. These simple moments change the world. Of course there's nothing wrong with bigger dreams. Just don't miss the minutes on your way to your bigger things. No, because these simple moments will change the world. They had little strength. And we as a church, compared to the task, have little strength. And we as individual Christ followers have little strength. But if we keep his word and do not deny his name, keep his word and do not deny his name, uh, God can use us. Now, there are three dangers that Jesus has challenged us about through the seven churches. And we begin to see some themes develop. One is apathy. And so he challenges us, rekindle your, your first love. And, and, and by the way, I don't know if I said this earlier. I said it at 8.30. I don't know if I said it here at 9.45. There is no better way to fight that than the rooted experience. Rooted will, will do that for you. It'll rekindle that first love. Um, hang in there. Persevere during persecution. Show grit in the face of hard times and suffering. And then the third way he talks about is false teaching. And we see this theme. He says to be discerning, hang on to God's word, and don't deny his name. Now, if you're visiting with us, please, I don't usually do this, okay? Uh, this is not a church that spends a lot of time talking about who we're against. We like to talk about what we're for, not what we're against. And, and I, you won't find me very often uh, talking critically of other faiths or uh, other religions. I, I believe in doing like FBI agents do today that are fighting counterfeiting, they don't spend any time looking at the counterfeit $100 bills. They spend all their time with real $100 bills. Because if they know the real thing intimately, they'll be able to spot the counterfeit. And so 99% of the time, that's what I'm about and that's what our church is about. But I do want to just give you one example today, and I'm really following the lead of Jesus because Jesus did call out these false teachers. And so he called them out. And so if we're going to be faithful to the text here, then, then I, I need to do that as well. And here's just the one thing I want to talk about, is that in our pluralistic society, there's this, this myth 
that all faiths, all worldviews, all philosophies have equal evidence to back them up. There's just this feeling, well, there must be plenty of evidence for all of them, and you just kind of have to pick the one that, that works best for you. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is absolutely untrue that there is equal evidence for each of the paths uh, to following God uh, that you can choose. Let me just give you one example. Uh, there's just an article this past week in the news uh, where the leaders of the Mormon church were asking their followers not to use the term Mormon or LDS, Latter-day Saints, anymore, but simply refer to themselves as Christians. Now, here's the problem with that. And this is not, Glenn, exaggerating. I, I'm probably way understating it this time. There are millions of pieces of evidence for the accuracy of the Bible. If you include every scrap of archaeological evidence, probably tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of evidence for the accuracy of the Bible. But absolutely none for the Book of Mormon. Zero. Zero. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Today when I knew I was going to preach on Philadelphia, I thought nothing of calling up Pete Wilson, our media pastor, and saying, hey, give me some pictures of ruins of the city of Philadelphia. Ne never for a moment occurred to me that there might not be anything there. If the Bible mentions it, it's going to be there. And sure enough, he starts popping all this stuff up because there's just, if the Bible mentions a city, there's evidence for that city. There's none of that evidence for the events of the Book of Mormon. The Bible has all kinds of corroborating evidence from other historical figures and other outside the Bible sources that, that corroborate, um, connect with what's in, in the Bible. The geography of the Bible matches what we know from history. There's a, a reason there's no map in, in a Mormon Bible, in the back of Mormon Bibles. It, it, there's a reason there's no map there. It's because the events don't correspond with the events that are written with the, what we know to be reality. Um, it doesn't match known geography. There's no archaeological remains. There's no traces in the Book of Mormon of the empires that the Book of Mormon talks about. The Book of Mormon talks about 30 major cities, and there is no trace that any of them existed. It mentions animals, uh, flora, fauna that didn't exist at the time. Metallurgy, writing, coins. I mean, you don't even think about it, but cities leave behind tons of coins. On a typical biblical archaeological site, they might find 30 to 40 coins in one day of digging. Zero have been found. There's no evidence of the battles that took place. No burial mounds, no temples. Uh, the major battles took place at a place called Hill Cumorah in upstate New York, and they have a pageant there every year. And it's, it's not too far from Homer, New York. As a matter of fact, just as an aside, Kimberly and my third date was to the Hill Cumorah pageant. First time I kissed her was after the Hill Cumorah pageant. It wasn't on Hill Cumorah, it was on the hill behind her farm uh, where, where she lived. But, but at any rate, but you go there. And this is where the major battles took place. They began to excavate it, excavate that area archaeologically. They found nothing. So they stopped archaeological digs because it was such an embarrassment. One of the most recent problems for the Book of Mormon has been DNA evidence. It claims that Native Americans are actually a tribe of Israelites uh, that came to North America. So all you have to do to check that out is to see if there is Jewish DNA 
in Native Americans. And then there's not. Um, a Mormon missionary comes to your door. They will not talk about any evidence. But instead of talking about evidence, concrete, historical, fulfilled prophecy, evidence for miracles, evidence for the resurrection, instead of all the concrete, um, testable things that we talk about in the Christian faith, what they'll say is, is read the Book of Mormon. And if as you read it, there's a burning in your bosom, that's evidence that it's true. No evidence, concrete evidence, just a subjective burning. Now let me ask you, do we do that in any other area of our life? Did your math teacher say, look at the equation, 2 plus 2 equals 5? And if as you read that equation, there's a burning sensation inside, that means it's true. If you're going to go to San Diego this afternoon, I wouldn't say to you, go to where the 10 and 15 freeways come together, get out a map, and see where you have a burning sensation in your bosom. And that'll get you to San Diego. The only area where we do this is in the most important area of life. Which is, is there a God or not? Is there an afterlife? If so, is there a heaven or a hell? And if so, how do you end up in heaven instead of hell? Only in the most important area of life do we rely on burning sensations instead of evidence. And so God says, he says, listen, back, back to verse 8 again. He says, I've placed before you an open door to heaven and also an open door of ministry that no one can shut. I know you have little strength. You can't be saved on your own and you can't fulfill God's plan and purpose for your life on the own. You have, you have micro dunamis. Yet, if you obey my word and if you don't deny my name, I will take you to heaven and I will fulfill my plan and purpose in your life on the way there. And all God's family said, 